Richard Loeberg from The Pursuit of Happiness, and you're listening to Reliving My Youth. And welcome to Reliving My Youth, the show where we look back at pop culture from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. My name is Noel Fogelman. My guest today is Mo Berg. Mo is the lead singer of the Canadian band The Pursuit of Happiness, who had their biggest hit, I'm an Adult Now, reached number 22 on the U.S. charts in 1988. Their debut album, celebrating its 30th anniversary this year, Love Junk, which was produced by Todd Rundgren. They are having a 30th anniversary vinyl release in September. Mo talks about that. Mo talks about the video for I'm an Adult Now. It's pretty low budget. It's great. We talk hockey. Mo's a big hockey fan. And I hope you guys enjoy my conversation with Mo. And helping me relive my youth today is Mo Berg. Mo, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Um, let's let's go way way back. Um, when did your interest in uh, music start? Oh, I was a little kid, like probably four or five years old, and I was listening to music, listening to the radio. I I lived in a really small town, and there's a little like a tobacco store that in my town where you could buy singles, forty fives, and so I'd go there and buy forty fives. And even when I was a little kid. And, play them so yeah I was from the earliest I can remember I was just completely like infatuated with music yeah what were some of the artists that you were listening to when you were younger when I was a little kid I would listen to the stuff that my sister and brother were listening to when they were older so they had when you know they had bought like Beatles and Beach Boys records the Who um, a lot of British invasion bands that kind of stuff so I was kind of listening to the stuff they bought they were older they sort of experienced that stuff before So how old were you when you like you first like started playing an instrument? Well, when I was a kid, when I, I'm trying to think of how old I was. I was probably like nine or ten. Um, I went for guitar lessons with my older brother, and uh, we um, we went to. But this the, our teacher was kind of crazy. <laughs> We'd be playing, and he'd uh, he'd um, take a drumstick, and if we put our finger on the wrong fret, he would hit our fingers with the drumstick. And so I did not like lessons. <laughs> and, so, and so I just kind of put it down for a while, and I just thought, I don't like this. And so, um, and then just about probably a couple of years later, when I was probably around 12 or so, I picked the guitar up by myself and just taught myself how to play it. Yeah, you know, it was going to hit you back then, then you played by yourself, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah. So I was, um, I was in college back in like mid 90s when I first discovered the pursuit of happiness, uh, obviously, with I'm an adult now. Uh, how did the band come together? Well, we were a bunch of transplanted Westerners. We, um, I had come from Edmonton, and so had Dave, our drummer. He was from Winnipeg, but through Edmonton. And um, our bass player at the time, Johnny Sinclair, was from Saskatoon. And we met these two girls who were from Winnipeg, and that was the original band that right. did this sort of independent version of I'm an Adult now. Um, and Tam and Tasha Mobley were the two. And then they left, and then we got um, Leslie Stanwyck and Chris Abbott to join the band. So that was the band that recorded Love Junk and, um, you know, and One Sided Story. So, yeah, 
it was just we just we were you know when you when you move to a new, if you ever move to a big city from a small town, you look for people who came from your area, you know, and then you sort of meet up with them, and that was kind of what we did. And we all got together and started a band. Right now, the the original recording when you were recorded, you didn't have a album out or even a record contract, correct? Oh yeah, when we did the original version of I'm an Adult Now, what it was was a demo to try and get gigs here in Toronto. So, you know, we just needed something to play for a club owners to let them know that we were legit. So we went to just a friend, this guy Scott DeSmith, and he had a 16-track Fostex studio in his basement. So we went and recorded four songs with him, and we just kind of used it as a demo. And then um, I had a friend named Nello Giran who worked, um, there's like a, a or I, it used to be, I guess, the sort of national film board. It was kind of sort of like a semi-government run, kind of like PBS or something that makes the films. And so he worked for them and he said, hey, I got some, you know, why don't we shoot a video for one of your songs just for something to do? And so we kind of cobbled together a bunch of people and we shot a video just on the street here in Toronto and for I'm an adult now. We just, and we just picked I'm an adult now almost random. We said, oh, this would be the best one to make a video for. And, um, and then we shot the video and then we took it to Much Music, which was kind of the equivalent to MTV at the time uh, in Canada. And they put it into full rotation. We just we thought they'd play it on their indie station and then they put it in full rotation. And then, you know, just one thing led to another. Right. And, and in the video, um, was that like uh, the little kid at the end? Was that a relative or some kid uh, on no. the street? <laughs> He was uh, he was the son of the guy who was doing sound on the video. Okay. So he just, I mean, you know, we were just looking for a kid, and he said, "Oh, I got a kid," and he got a kid to come down, and yeah. So it was a lot of a lot of a lot of everything that happened there was either luck or fluke or chance, or it was pretty pretty fun. Right. Yeah. And um, not everyone has their first album uh, produced by Todd Rundgren. How did that happen? Yeah, I mean, when we, so, you know, after after the success of our independent version of I'm an Adult Now, we, you know, we started to get attention from record labels and managers and stuff, and so we started getting things together, we got a, um, um, you know, we eventually got a record deal with Chrysalis in New York, and um, so we're in the office one day, I guess we were just kind of touring around, we were in the office just having a meeting and talking, um, and, um, and the president of the company said, well, who would you like to produce your record? I said, well, Todd Rundgren, because he was my favorite producer, right. my favorite artist, you know. And I just kind of said it the way you say, you know, who would you really like to play catch with? Oh, I don't know, like Jim Kelly, you know. Yeah, exactly. Just like you just say whoever you fantasize about doing that with, you know. And then, um, and then, uh, I'm so, so then we're touring around, and we, I think we were touring in the northeast of the U.S., and then we came sort of west, I guess, and we ended up in Winnipeg, which is in sort of the middle of Canada. And, um, and we're at Soundcheck, and someone says, hey, there's a phone call for you. And so I pick up the phone, and I say, hello. And he goes, I'm O, it's Todd Rundgren. You know, and I just, like, what a moment is that? Like, mm-hmm. someone just calls you up that you sort of worshipped your whole life. And so he just immediately started talking about, like, producing the record, and that was kind of that. So, note to everybody, it's, you know, of the stars. Yeah, exactly. You, um... <laughs> If you, if you don't ask, you know, you, you never know. It's like what Gretzky said, you know, you miss all the shots you never take. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah, so like I, I've i interviewed um, Barry Andrews, who used to be in uh, XTC and Shreedback, and they worked on, um, Todd Rungan worked on one of his albums with XTC, and him and Andrew Partridge, Todd Rungan, didn't really get along that well, I guess two big alpha males. How, how was working with Todd? Well, my experience with Todd was great. I mean, I, I really had a lot of respect for him. I understood the 
dynamic of the producer artist um, relationship. So I knew that we were paying him a lot of money to produce a record, so I was very willing to accept his input. So I think that was probably part of the difference was Andy had probably, I think, had a certain way he liked to do things. And, right. um, um, and I mean, I think this is one of the, the tricky things about the artist-producer relationship is, from my understanding of that situation was the record company was looking at XTC and sort of saying, you need to have a hit or we're dropping you. Right, right. And so that was, I think, what was told to Todd. And so Todd, you know, Todd, from my, what this, all the stories I've heard, worked pretty hard on that record and really put a lot into making sure that it was something that was going to hopefully save their career, which it actually did. <laughs> they ended up having a hit single, and I think yeah. that really revived their career. So, but Todd was very, he is an alpha male, like 100%, and it's kind of like, and he's not one of those producers that's like, hey, you're doing great, this is awesome. He's kind of like, let's get this done and get the job done. And I kind of found that funny more than anything else. <laughs> like when he'd sort of give us sort of like backhanded compliments, I'd sort of laugh my head off. Like I thought it was hilarious. So, uh, yeah, I loved working with him. And then we ended up doing another record with him. We did our second record. And I'm still, I guess, I, I, you know, I guess I'll call myself his friend at this point. Yeah. Like, um, you know, I don't, not love talking to him all the time, but if he comes through Toronto, I would, you know, probably go see him and we'd probably hang out. And, and I recently actually, he asked me to, to record a song for his most recent record, White Night. So him and I co-wrote a song together called Let's Do It. So that was kind of like the thrill of a lifetime. Uh, that's, that's awesome. Now, you started producing artists as well, correct? Mm-hmm. Have you taken anything you've learned from Todd yeah. and kind of applied it to what you do with other artists? Oh, 100%. So, I mean, Todd is a real song guy. He's like, and you can hear that on the things that he records, and you certainly could hear that even on the XTC record, how he sort of, like, helped them shape their songs. And so um, so one of the things that Todd did was he really helped us identify our sound, like who we were as a band. And that was maybe one of the best things he did. But Todd's whole thing is, uh, this would be similar to a producer like Rick Rubin, um, which is to do most of the work outside the studio, which is to get the songs in really good shapes, but they have a good song with a good arrangement, and you know your lyrics are good and everything's good, so that when you go in the studio, you can just record. And that's what you should be doing in a recording studio. You shouldn't be just like working things out. So everything is kind of worked out outside the studio and then you just record. So that's the way I prefer to work too, because most of the artists that I work with are kind of indie artists and they don't have a lot of money to spend in the studio. So we spend quite a bit of time outside the studio working on their songs, working on their arrangements, working on what everyone's playing in the song. So that when you go in the studio, you're just laying it down. And this is a way to also keep the spontaneity, spontaneity of the recording going. Right. Now, when uh, Todd first heard, I'm an adult now, what was his thoughts? Well, Todd didn't, he, it's funny, uh, um, I never knew how much Todd liked our band until much later. Like, when he talks about it in hindsight, um, he he says all these really nice things about our band and about our songs and and me, and and it's, it's, you know, it's obviously very... um, flattering at the time it was he's it was more like let's just you know it was more about getting the business of getting it done like but i think you know i think he um i think hearing the song he understood like like what what that was what it what what it was going to be for the band and stuff so um he he didn't like i said he's he's not like a raw raw kind of producer not like a cheerleader kind of producer he's more like let's do this let's get it done let's get do it let's capture the spontaneity of the band and yeah, and now it's 30 years this year that uh, Low Junk came out. Um, what was like your favorite part of actually recording that? Well, I, I you know, 
I, I mean, it was great making the record. It was, I mean, it was a real heady experience for us. We're in, you know, the middle of the country in upstate New York, and you know, we're, we're recording with Todd Rundgren, who is, you know, like our hero, and, and you know, and, and and you know, so being in the studio with him and just kind of being in that place where he recorded all this other stuff, all of his his songs and stuff, other bands he'd worked with. I mean, I mean, important thing to understand about Todd is like how many bands had hit songs on the records that he produced. Like, he's a real song guy, and he can really figure. He really has a knack of identifying the song that could be a hit for a band. And so, uh, he's great at that. And so, it was just cool to be there and just be part of that. And and then you know, like you know, every once in a while, Todd would come down. There's on his property at the time. He had a house, and then the studio was in the middle, and then there was another house. And the other house was kind of the guest house, and that's where the band would stay in. And there's <clears throat> so every once in a while he would come down, and we'd just start talking, and we'd have a few drinks, and we'd just have these long conversations about whatever, you know, politics or music, or, you know, I'd ask him every story I ever wanted to, to ask him about his career, music, or anything like that. And so just the opportunity to just kind of hang out with, you know, this guy I admired so much was kind of one of the highlights of it for sure. Yeah. Was it kind of like hard not to like, to, you know, geek out and kind of hold your emotions in check while you're talking with oh, him? Oh, for sure. Yeah. It, it was, it, it was interesting because Todd came to Toronto to see his play and he said, you know, to him to see his perform. And so, um, and so the night of that, we played the show and then afterwards we went back to our bass player, Johnny's place. And, uh, um, and he, and I, and I got to ask him like tons and tons of fan questions. We stayed up all night and then he had an early morning flight. And so, getting that all the way, once we got to the studio, I sort of talked about a lot of that stuff already, so it was more easy for us to just kind of get down to work at that point. But I, yeah, I definitely geeked out. And I, and I really still do. If I see him now, I still kind of geek out a bit. Right, yeah. I, I met him once at my old job. He came in, uh, did an interview, so it was kind of cool just you know saying hi to him for a little, little bit and taking a picture with him. That was, that was pretty neat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, um... Was I'm an adult now? Was that a pretty easy song to write?
like a fool Dead in a dish somewhere with a mind full of chemicals Like some cheese-eating high school boy It was one of those songs that, I mean, it's, the whole songwriting process is so weird to talk about because people say all things like, you know, it, it just came to me, like, you know, I'm just I'm just a vessel and music just channels through me and stuff like that and all this sort of mystical stuff that I don't even know what that even means. Um, I think there's something called inspiration, like, um, and I'm not sure what that means, but like people say, you know, you know God sends me songs or whatever. <laughs> when people have big hits. Well, yeah, I, I guess it'd be interesting to, I mean, I read a lot of stuff about songwriting and everybody has different ideas about how they write. But I think there's always that initial burst of inspiration and then there's the craftsmanship that comes after where you start looking at it and say, okay, well, that's good, but I can make this line better. 
and that was you know it was a decent hit in, in the US and it was like 22 I believe um, why is it like so hard for like other like Canadian art acts to kind of like break through in, in the US well I mean I'm not sure that's true anymore I mean when I think about Canadian acts that are you know like The Weeknd and Drake and um, there's so many Canadian acts that are like huge in America I mean some, you know every once in a while it'll be like an Alanis Morissette or something Cowboy Junkies a band that will just have a gigantic hit in the States and so I mean you know we're a small country there's like 30 million people here and just if there's 30 million people in the States it would be I mean, there's, there wouldn't be as much popular culture as there is. Um, so it's a bit bad. But, I mean, I think I, I, I'm not sure why I'm an adult now. It wasn't a bigger hit. I mean, it certainly did fine for us. I mean, certainly on college radio, we were number two on college radio for like six weeks or something right. like that. Um, and, it, and you know, we got you know we got some chart action in Australia and around Europe. So I guess it just didn't break into the stratosphere, and that could have been... I don't know, like our record company didn't have enough power or, or you know, maybe it was just too idiosyncratic to be like a full-on, you know, number one kind of song. So it's hard to say. I mean, you know, it, it, I try not to look at it that way. I try to look at it like it did, it gave me a life in music. Like, you know, I still get to, I'm still in music now, you know. And so if it wasn't for I'm an adult now, that never would have happened. So I, I'm grateful that it even was as successful as it was. I think it so many friends I've had or so many people I know that never got to experience what I got to experience and, you know, never had any real success in music and they tried hard, probably just as hard as I did. Yeah, absolutely. But I was thinking like, even like, um, like Tragically Hip, who are, you know, legendary in, in your country where in, right. in America, they're like, they can play a, a little club, you know, and I've you know, yeah. which, which is really cool, you know, when I, obviously when, you know, Gord was still alive. But, you know, I was able to see them in smaller venues in New York and stuff like that. But as you get closer to, say, like, you know, Buffalo, you know, Syracuse, and then obviously Canada, they play, like, these arenas and stadiums. Well, yeah, it's interesting. And, I, and, you know, I mean, that's a little bit more of a more, I think that's a more interesting story is why the Tragically Hip were bigger than, than they were. Um, I, I, but, I mean, it, it's interesting, the exposure, how much the exposure to them helped that. Because it's like, why in Buffalo? So it's not necessarily as soon as you cross the American border, tragically right. it becomes irrelevant. Yeah. It's like, if you're near the border and you've been exposed to them through Canadian radio stations, you, you like them. So I think that was part of it. I think that they just didn't get whatever, like if radio stations had been playing them in, in the U.S. and that kind of thing, maybe they would have been a lot bigger. But I guess um, the, people just didn't, weren't exposed to them right away. And so I'm looking at it more like it wasn't necessary that the American people didn't weren't interested in them. It would seem more like like the American music business wasn't interested in them, and so they didn't want to play their records or they didn't want to promote their records. And, but, I mean, I, I'm just talking. I have no idea. I mean, I, I'm as mystified as everybody else as to why they weren't bigger in the States. But, uh, you know, a lot of people say there is something idiosyncratically Canadian about them, and I'm not sure if that's true. I don't know. I'm not, I, I would be hard for me to say. Right. Yeah. I mean, that was like, because that's how I discovered you guys, you know, going to school up in Buffalo. That's how I discovered right. discovered them. And besides the good fast food and, and the food and the Canadian music, that was like the two things I took away from, you know, being in Buffalo. <laughs> right. Right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'd be, be people, you know, in Buffalo would listen to like CFNY. And that was like the alternative station in Toronto and you'd get it over the border and right. you'd hear that. I mean, we were lucky in Buffalo that we got lots of college play and, you know, we could come across the border and we'd play like the Continental 
right, yeah, because you know, I worked at my college radio station, so you know, you guys are definitely in heavy rotation there. Right. Yeah. Now, um, a, a side project you, you, you've done, the Trans-Canada Highwaymen, how did that come about with Stephen Page from Bare Naked Ladies and Chris you know, Murphy from Sloan? How did that come about? Well, I have a friend named Jim Milan, and he's like a theatrical producer-director, and he's like he <clears throat> produced and directed like the Alton Brown show and the Mythbusters show and Penn and Teller and the Kids in the Hall and all these shows. He worked on the Spider-Man show, and so he had this. He came to me, and we've been friends for ages. And he said, "Be great to put on a theatrical show that was four guys that were just talking about you know being in a band and playing songs and just and all around the same era, the sort of like early '90s kind of you know era of music." Um, and so he came to me first, and we talked about getting Chris, he, Chris Murphy from Sloan, um, I was a big fan of, and, and Craig Norby from The Odds, who right. was also a fan of, and Steve Page. And so we all kind of just got together, and we, and so the idea is that there was a multimedia aspect to it. So we, you know, we have like we'd show um, um, interviews and and scenes, and then we play a song, and then we talk about songs and stuff like that. But we did it as a band. It wasn't one of those songwriters in the round thing where you just all sit on acoustic guitar. Like we were a full band, drums, bass, two guitars, and we played these songs. So it was a concert, but there was also like a theatrical element to it as well. So it was kind of a neat show. And so we did it, and then we're just going to kind of continue to do it every once in a while. Those guys are really busy. Like they are busy with their real bands. And right. So, um, so they'll probably be whenever we can get a chance and to do something then we we kind of do it so maybe maybe in the fall we'll be we'll be out doing it again right now with the 30th anniversary of love, love junk have you thought about reuniting uh pursuit of happiness do you like kind of like a tour well yeah it's funny it's funny you should say that because um universal records is going to do a like a deluxe vinyl reissue of love junk oh, awesome. so it'll be two or three disc vinyl reissue with a big fancy book and all that kind of stuff so that's where we're in the middle of planning that with the hopes it will be released in the summer and so well and then so we're going to probably spend the summer doing some shows i don't know how many shows but we're going to play some shows this summer and so it'll be the band that you know the most recent version of the band brad barker our bass player he's been with the band you know for however like he joined the band not right after we released one side of story so he's been the sort of permanent bass player of the band for almost our entire career so it'll be me and Dave and Chris and him, and then Renee Suki, who's been our singer for the last 20 years, even though we only play like once every three or four years, but she's the singer. So that'll be the band, and we're going to go out and do some shows. And so it should be fun, and it should be interesting, too. It's been interesting putting this package together as well. There's going to be a bunch of live versions and old demos and you know different versions of songs from that era, and so it should be kind of a neat package. Oh, that's that's awesome. Um just a Canadian tour or are you going to cross the border well I, I guess anything is possible we'll sort of see what kind of interest there is in this and it'd be great to come at least come and play like you know Buffalo or Rochester um, you know that kind of thing so we'll see right yeah ho hopefully I'll make a trip up there to see you guys uh, uh, one of my favorite songs by you off Where's the Bone is uh, Gretzky Rocks you know big hockey right. fan uh, how much fun was that making that song <laughs>
Americans don't understand the national sport of the Northland. The world's fastest game, they're always dissing, but they don't know what they are missing. If they just watch Wayne Gretzky play, then they watch hockey every day. Actually, I like the Hawks, but boy, oh boy, Wayne Gretzky rocks. So you, you really are a Blackhawks fan, then, right? I am a Blackhawks fan, one hundred percent. I am, but yeah. But I mean, I was I was a big Wayne Gretzky fan. I, I, my hometown is Edmonton, Alberta, so I am, um, and so I still had always had an affection for for, um, for the Edmonton Oilers, and I certainly you know followed Wayne Gretzky's career absolutely. Right. Yeah. I, I my both my son and myself are big hockey fans. We're big Islander fans, and last year for his birthday. I took him on a little road trip. We went to a game in Buffalo, and then we went up to Toronto to see the Leafs play. And then I took him to Gretzky's, you know, for dinner. And uh, his father Walter was there, and you know, came over, signed the autograph. For my son took a picture. It was it was really nice. Oh, that's fantastic! That's yeah. so cool. Yeah, it, it was it was it was really awesome. And uh, yeah, my son was like you know geeking out of the whole trip, and you know keeps bugging me to get uh, Wayne Gretzky's book. I'm like. Finish the three of the books you're reading right now, then I'll get you Wayne Gretzky's book. <laughs> right, right, sure, of course. Yeah, so um, yeah, so I imagine when you watched the All Star Game way back then, it was a little different than it is now. Um, how can you actually save the All Star Game? Because I think it's kind of just been irrelevant now. Well, I mean, the, the All Star Game's always been kind of what it is. It's not really a game; it's just a bit of a showcase. And I mean, hockey is an interesting sport. I mean. When you think about baseball or, or basketball, you can kind of the, the all-star game in some ways isn't that much different because there's like this, um, like in basketball, like the, the game is constructed to make sure the stars can shine. Like there's right. only so much you can do to stop a guy from. 
shooting a basket. Of course. I mean, and in baseball, it's just like it's it's mano a mano. It's a it's a batter against a you know a pitcher, you know, and then you know once the ball's in play, then it's how good the outfielders are. So it's not like physical contact and people aren't grabbing and holding each other. And so hockey is kind of unique that way, where it's kind of difficult to play a real game in the in the in the All Star game. And, and I'm not sure that that's what it's really all about. Like to me, it's like I don't necessarily need to see a real game. I think it's there's there's a I think if, if people looked at the All Star game as a kind of a lighthearted thing, like it's just a chance for the guys to go out and play and score funny goals, you know, score goals that they wouldn't get to score in in you know uh, in a real game and that kind of thing. And you just get to see everybody play and it's lighthearted. I almost think the players should even play that up a bit. You know, it was funny one year. I remember Owen Nolan. Oh yeah, I don't know if you remember on the breakaway pointed to the goal. Yeah, yeah. breakaway he pointed to where he was going to shoot it, and he shot it and scored. And I just like things like that to me. That's the all-star game to me. It's like you do that kind of showboaty, funny thing because you know you're the best in the world. And so I know I, I, I'm not that bothered by by the you know the. I mean, it is an irrelevant game. It's just a, it's an opportunity to showcase the best players in, in the game and. Yeah, I mean, I, I think maybe the, they can kind of have the game outdoors, maybe kind of because I think now the whole outdoors thing, the amount of games, it's it's kind of grown tired. I think maybe just making the All Star Game the outdoor classic would be kind of uh, yeah. cool. I think that's a good idea. You know, because yeah, I'd be for that. Yeah, because I mean, the league kind of doesn't market. I don't think they do a good job marketing its players, and a lot of like I, obviously Edmonton's different, but small towns. But like I'm thinking like New York, some of the stars can just walk down the street and like they can just be invisible and sure. you know maybe like with the shootout they can kind of go you know without their helmet because you don't really need a helmet in the shootout except besides the goalie of yeah. course but you know the skaters really don't yeah this is a great idea yeah i'll i'll yeah. I'll, I'll write a letter you know to the league if you want to help me out <laughs> sure yeah. yeah yeah mo but thank you for a few minutes today i really appreciate it and best of luck with the 30th anniversary of love junk great thanks great talking to you Noel. And a special thanks to Mo for joining us today. You can follow Mo on Twitter at MoTPOH. If you want to follow the band on Twitter, it's TPOH Band. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at the first Noel19. Be sure to like the page We're Living My Youth on Facebook. You can go to iTunes, check out all the past episodes we've had. While you're there, please rate and review the show and subscribe to it as well. If you don't have iTunes, not a problem. Go to Podbean, go to SoundCloud. Special thanks to everyone who's listening. I can't do it without you guys. And be on the lookout for another episode of Roving My Youth real soon.